This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the 15 Minutes of Football podcast in association with Transfer News Central and, of course, Big Heads Media, like you heard at the start. I'm here, Jordan's here. Hello. And, yeah, we're in that, in, we're in that inevitable crossroads between... The end of the season in the European Championships. Generally, we're not going to be touching too much on the European Championships this week. We'll know a lot more with, with all things England, with all things everyone, really, next week, because we're, we're virtually on the eve of the tournament at that point. So there's going to be quite a bit of a focus on the loose ends of this season, the two European finals, the dramatic European finals, a miserable week for Manchester clubs. And we'll discuss both of those debacles first man united they were the first out there secondly we'll look at manchester city what it means for them that result what it means going forward then we'll have a look at the transfers that have already happened before any summer action has been undertaken and there's some big ones canate to liverpool probably the biggest so far and indicative actually a move indicative of liverpool's excellent early summer business that we haven't really seen for a year now, but it's a reminder that when they're on it, they're on it, and Liverpool will be hoping that's the first of a few because they'll need it. And finally, have a little touch on England because even though as this podcast goes out, we don't fully know the 26-man squad that Gareth Southgate's picked. You will do when it goes out, just while we're recording. We haven't heard it yet. Many reports suggest that Trent Alexander-Arnold will be the biggest emission of all of them, and we'll discuss that one, in a bit of detail. One yeah. one of the biggest. One of the biggest. Ben Godfrey <laughs> also reportedly not involved. Might be involved tomorrow. That's why we don't want to be too heavy on England, too heavy on other yeah. teams, even though many other teams have actually released their squads. But we want to have it all finalised before we really delve into it in more discussion. Anyway, back to the start. Back to what seems like a, a lifetime ago, world away, Europa League. Crazy, crazy. I mean, it was... One of the most exciting, on the, on the level, one of the most exciting penalty shoots outside I've seen in a long time. Ten apiece, yeah. that is incredible. David Hare missing the vital spot kick at the end. Uh, just before we touch on miserable Manchester Reds, I think it's also worth saying, and uh, I was listening to this on the Hopkin Looking to Kill One podcast as well, how important it is to credit Villarreal and Unai Emery for what was a tactical masterclass. And you know what I kind of liked about this? Even though I was... I was willing United on to win, being the you know the English team in, in the in the tie. I did want Man United. I did want Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I do like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Would have been lovely to see him get his first trophy. The arrogance of some of the pundits, particularly Paul Scholes, who consistently kept saying, "Oh, United will win this three one. Oh, United will win this three one. Oh, United <laughs> the will win Burnley, the Spanish Burnley was was mentioned a lot, I think, on Twitter as well. It was the arrogance of the pundits, the arrogance of the media, the 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 idea that this was an entitled win for Manchester United made me so happy that Villarreal won this trophy, that Unai Emery won this trophy for the fourth time, Villarreal won this trophy the first time in their history. It was brilliant for me to see that. And it was a brilliant masterclass tactically for Emery and the players executed his defensive, organised plan to perfection. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I mean, I was the opposite, really. I, I wanted Villarreal to win from the start. Although we, we got asked last week, didn't we, why why we didn't do any predictions for the, the two big yeah. European matches. Yeah. And uh, I think both results <laughs> went against what my predictions would have been. Um, 
so so I think it's maybe a good good idea that we didn't do that, and it's also a good idea that I didn't put any money on it as well. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think I think with you with as far as Jordan's concerned, it's a bit like oh, here we go. It's a bit like playing go. the um the 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 two defensive midfielders in front of the back four. You don't want to leave them exposed um to any to any particular difficult opinion if if he does get exposed then you might see levels of uncertainty in the back and that's why we try and shield him with a right back a left back uh pushed in and two defensive mids mcfred would be sat in front of jordan just to keep him cushy in the back four but well what you mentioned mcfred yeah Oli chose to go without that, didn't he? Actually, well, yeah, Oli out was. Tra- I mean, just before we go on to that, I'll just, I, like I said, I'll just again, just just for all clarification, absolutely well done to Villarreal, absolutely well done to Anemri, and absolutely well done for their tactical excellence throughout that game. Hasn't been talked about enough. United's failures have been talked about more, and that's not that shouldn't be the case. We should always congratulate the winner, especially when it was against Oli Oz. It was a David versus Goliath, and they did splendidly well on the night. Uh, and also worth bearing in mind, they were in the Conference League. They're now in the Champions League because they won um, that competition. Um, but yeah, as far as United were concerned, yeah, McFred didn't happen. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer went with his strongest eleven on paper, to be honest. Um, you looked at that team when I saw the team come out. My initial reaction actually was straight away, if this goes a long way, i.e. to 90 minutes, who is he bringing off the bench? And that was the quandary that he, that he faced when Unai Emery brought five players off the bench. Solskjaer waited and waited and waited and reluctantly, I think, at the end, started putting some substitutes on. Right at the very end, it was Tellez and Matter for penalties. Um, yeah. And my thinking was, well, obviously it's really weird, isn't it? Because if he doesn't put his strongest 11 out, everyone says, why aren't you putting your strongest 11 out? But then by putting his strongest 11 out, if, it, if the game goes to the you know, to the to the maximum, to the 120 minutes like it did. He has no changes to bring on. So in my mind, I was thinking, could he have started with a Daniel James, a Juan Mata or someone of that ilk? And then on the 90, brought on a Mason Greenwood or a Marcus Rashford because there was nothing. And I guess what that did show, though, in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's defence was that there was a lack of genuine squad depth to the same level of, as what was on the starting field. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I, I mean, we, we mentioned with Fred, I feel like, I think it did come out that Fred was carrying a small knock and that's why he didn't mm. start. And had he been fully fit, I would have maybe expected him to start, maybe Pogba on the left, Rashford on the right and Greenwood on the bench. So that would have maybe given a little bit more firepower off the bench because obviously he did sub Fred on, but he's not really going to come on and change the game. Yeah, You may be looking more for the opposite kind of change and bringing Pogba into that central, central midfield to, to kind of turn it up a little bit in... Uh, in terms of uh, faster passes into the attack. But mm. when you bring your Fred on instead, it doesn't really have the same effect. But yeah, no, I agree completely. I feel like the, the bench was a worry. And it, we saw, I mean, obviously in the Champions League as well, that the true strength and depth of both Chelsea and Man City, that Man United maybe don't have, particularly in the second mm. third. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned about his the two subs right at the end in Juan Mata and uh, Alex Tellez. They both scored the pens, so I suppose you could say that's quite a good substitution right at the end, really. Uh, obviously, I don't think Oli or anyone was really expecting the the kind of heroics we did see from all the penalty takers, bar David De Gea. Mm. Yeah. No, I think it was... Yeah, it was a really frustrating day for him. I mean, United didn't really get going, and there was an emphasis, I think, from Villarreal, um, you know, to 
It was quite clever, really. They seemed to allow Aaron Wan-Bissaka on the right-back position to have quite a lot of the ball and really sort of shifted their shape in a way that they didn't try and nullify the threat of everyone, but they gave Wan-Bissaka a lot of time on the right to, to really run at the, the defence across the ball on the understanding that he wouldn't be as threatening as a Luke Shaw. And then they were getting tied to, to Greenwood, who wanted to cut inside, getting tied to Rashford, who wanted to cut inside. They had lots of men in the middle to stop Man United you know, really doing anything. And yeah, I think it, it it was it was it was a truly you know frustrating uh, frustrating game for them. And you know Moreno's goal for um, for Villarreal really, I think, really solidified the game plan. It gave them something to hold on to. Yeah, they took full advantage of the half chance that they got. And of course, it's one of those fine margin games, really. It's a bit like the Chelsea-Leicester game in the FA Cup final, in that when you get a bit... I mean, Leicester scored a wonder goal, but apart from that, they had, they had no chances. You know, it was a nil-nil, and, you know, they had the extra incentive to hold out once they got the goal. And with Villarreal, they didn't have any chances except for that, but that gave them the extra incentive to hold on. Even at 1-1, they were holding on to something. Could see yeah. that out. It's Probably playing for penalties. It's all about kind of having the key bit of quality in that key moment, isn't it? And I, I feel like it was really the ball in from Danny Parejo that was was truly wonderful. Uh, and obviously it was a good finish on top of that. And mm. as you say, it allowed them something to build on. Man United got the goal through Cavani. It was right place, right time, as you would expect from Edison Cavani. Mm. Uh uh, and obviously, yeah, it, it carried on to penalties. When when you maybe would have expected with with the firepower that Man United did have to pull them to score, but as you mentioned, Villarreal were were, were truly dogged in defence, and it was a really good performance tactically from them. Yeah, I mean, after the game, Oli out was trending all over, and yeah, it's natural that that's the reaction because it always seems to be the case that the the axe falls on the manager whenever something bad happens. Um, I don't agree with it myself, and I know. Simon Jordan on TalkSport was saying, you bring Antonio Conte in in this situation, it takes United to the next level. Don't argue with that as such, because I do think if I, I you know, I love Antonio Conte. If Antonio Conte did come into Manchester United right now, I think there's a big chance he could win a Premier League title within two years. I, I do think that's true. However, what for me, Ollie's sort of heading at the moment, Solskjaer's sort of heading is, he's heading a really sustainable group of players at United and they've got two big transfer targets this summer. One's Jaded Sancho and the other's Declan Rice. If they get those two, that adds, I think, to the sustainable future, um, you know, of youth, exuberant youth that's just going to flourish in the next few years at Man United. Um, and it doesn't mean the results are going to come instantly. It does mean they're going to still have to do well, but I do feel that in two or three years, that squad with a Sancho and a Rice potentially involved is really, you know, in two or three years, is really coming into, is, is really going coming into fruition. Um, I think they're in a, the best place they've been, provided they get two signings of that ilk or start to strengthen the squad. They're in one of the best positions they've been, or best position they've been post Sir Alex Ferguson, um, because they've got back to back top four finishes. The first time since Ferguson, okay, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't got the trophies to back it up, but it's a platform to build upon. And when they say trophies, 
I think United fans, I think everyone associated with United really means the big trophies because that's what all the ex-players talk about. That's what all the fans talk about. And the big trophies is two. There's the Champions League and there's the Premier League. And they haven't got one of those since Ferguson. So Louis van Gaal's come in. He's won an FA Cup, but they finished fifth. Jose Mourinho came in. He won two trophies, but he finished sixth in that season. So it's not like these managers have come in, done a wonderful job, and Solskjaer's underperforming. You know, Solskjaer is probably lacking a trophy. And if he doesn't rectify that in the next season, or if he gets another contract in the next two seasons, then questions definitely have to be asked. But going from sixth in the league in his, in, when he first took over in his half season, to third in the league in his first full season, to second in the league this season with a final, I think the steady progress is obvious. It's there. And it's not the right time for me to be calling for his head. No, I think you've made some excellent points there, really. Um, I, I agree with the sentiments on a lot of it. And I think that what he, what Ollie has done really well is offered stability in a time where Man United really needed it. Obviously, with a global pandemic, that's really what you want in a club and a, and a manager. But, and, and really for me, it's been something that I've thought since Oli has come in. I just feel like there's a level above him that Man United should be targeting in a coach. I, I think that, there has been an overreaction, particularly on social media, from people saying that Ollie needs to be sacked because he's lost another final, uh, not won another trophy in another season. He's well, another final. But, first yeah, I was going to say, he's lost yeah. a lot of semi-finals, hasn't he? Um, but as I say, I think there's an overreaction on social media from people calling for his head straight away because of that. But I'm certainly in the camp where I feel as though if you can go out and get an Antonio Conte, you mm. can go out and get a Zinedine Zidane, mm. I feel as though they maybe should because I feel like they can kick on from this mm. point. They've got a, a good squad. If they made those two signings, that would improve the squad even more, mm. starting 11 in particular. I, I, and I just feel as though it's maybe the right time for them to make that move and kick on. Well, yeah, I'm glad you took... I didn't really clarify my Conte point, obviously, that, and I'm glad you brought that back up, really, because for me... And I, you know, I love Conte uh, a lot for his passion, for his uh, reluctance to sort of conform to the mainstream way of playing football that seems to be the case over these years. He has his own different way, which is effective. But I think United would leave Antonio Conte's tenure in a worse position than they're in now. I think the foundations for the future would be more, would be broken to an extent. What would it do to the uh, development of players like maybe a Wan-Bissaka, a McTominay, a Mason Greenwood, um, you know, players like this, Marcus Rashford, Jaded Sancho maybe even. I feel like if Conte was to come in, we know his portfolio, we know his type. He wants ready-made players, not players who are going to grow into those styles. And he buys a lot of players traditionally, who are experienced, who will run through walls, get the job done in the short term. We've seen it into Milan. And I have no, I have no, um, no doubt that with, a few, with some recruitment this summer and with potential recruitment next summer, if he had two seasons at Old Trafford, I think he would take that team on, like you said, to the next level. But I would think after that, what shape would United be in when in, 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 invariably... He falls out with the Glazers, he leaves the club and and he wants to move on to a different challenge. Yeah, again, it's another good point, but I think I feel like the, the key issue is risk. You could go with the safe option of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, where you, I don't think that Ole's going to win the Premier League. I don't think that he's going to beat City or Liverpool next season or even Chelsea next season. I don't see them winning the Champions League. 
and in the in the short term future, I just don't see them winning any of these big trophies. They might win an FA Cup, as you say, it's maybe not the calibre that the fans are really looking for. Mm. But you could then take on that risk. As you mentioned, Antonio Conte, there's a decent chance that he would come in and really challenge for the title. Maybe see, for, win see, it, for me, though, it's, it's a risk. That's part of it. I, w- I would say so. Maybe a club like Tottenham, where to me, I you know, he's been linked with Tottenham, and that would look, that does look a bit far-reaching. But if he went to Tottenham, there's no risk because Tottenham aren't going anywhere anywhere quickly. I don't think. You look at that squad. There's so much wrong with it. There's uh, a lot of last ditch saloon, last chance saloon with Tottenham. Exactly. Whereas it's not with United. Where but, he, so, so the thing with Conte is, as you mentioned, is he maybe wouldn't leave them in as good a place as Ollie will in two years' time, but he might have won a trophy at that time. Mm. The thing with that then is they can get rid of him mm. and hire somebody else, hire another top coach. And you yeah. look at maybe Chelsea is the poster boys for this. Yeah, they've that's Frank Lampard last uh, in the middle of the season. They've mm. hired but Frank a, Lampard true... had them ninth though. In fairness, he did. Lampard. Yeah, no. I, I'm not suggesting that Ollie's not done. Uh, Ollie has obviously done a better job than Frank Lampard was doing, but the fact they pulled the trigger on him while he was underperforming and maybe not winning the titles, Tuchel's come in. He's proven just how good the squad, what the what the squad is capable of, and he's won the Champions League. I, I feel as though the risk is worth taking for Man United. I feel like for the fans, mm. they would maybe want that risk to be taken as well. I feel like there's a chance with Solskjaer if you want to give him the time, and it is, a, it is a big if, because you want to see signs of progression year on year. And next year, I think sign of progression would probably be top four and a cup, like an FA Cup, or I think that would be fine. I feel like he, he has to win a cup. At some if, point. Even if it is just an FA Cup, he has to, in order but to keep it. At shot. some point, but you shouldn't also look at Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. You should never discredit the top four achievement in a competitive Premier League to keep to get that on two, yeah. two, two times on the spins. Excellent. First time, as I said, post Ferguson. If he does that again, that's another achievement. And I don't want to downplay Man United as a football club, but they haven't been uh, a big achiever since Ferguson. So let's get that right. Let's get that into some perspective. Um, and to build sustainably from that, I do think they've got a chance with careful recruitment, with uh you know, over the years to keep pushing, to keep developing the squad under Solskjaer's Liège, there is an opportunity, I feel, for a major trophy. But the problem, the difference is, like you said, there is less of a guarantee and you have to give that time and you have to give uh, a bit more wiggle room. Whereas if you brought in, like you say, an elite manager like Conte, one or two seasons, probably all he needs. But with a Solskjaer, with the project that's going on, you're probably looking further down the line at the major trophies, three or four. And then... Again, it's all about patience, I think, really, isn't it? And the lack, there isn't a guarantee, and it is an interesting one. But for me, I'd certainly be letting him see out his contract, see how next season goes, and then taking it from there. I, th- I think, I think, um, I think you've got to take it from there, really. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a fair outcome, and I, I'd probably, I'd back that as well. I, he, he's, he has done a good job. I'm not, I'm not discrediting him at all. I think he's, as I say, he's offered a lot of stability in, in a time where it's really necessary. Mm. But I would maybe err on the risky side even more and, and try and get that Zidane if it was possible. But yeah, so we'll, we'll touch on, we'll touch on um, United a bit there. We'll look at Man City as well. And also I'm going to try and tie in a few points I missed off about uh, Solskjaer there with Guardiola as well, to a point. So we, obviously City played... Uh, Chelsea on in the Champions League final on a Saturday and it was a terrible day for them and interesting really you, you know you looked at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team and he picked really what we think will probably be the best team available to him as you say yeah. with Fred potentially injured but when, when we looked at Manchester City's team and both you and I had the same reaction which was even I 
from honestly from that reaction we were both surprised that there was no clear number six or or natural number six picked natural defensive midfield with Gundogan who has played there slipping back from his number eight position box to box and going into a six we both raised eyebrows at that and I actually thought after that I was fancying Chelsea a little bit and lo and behold Chelsea did go out and get the victory now this one um, again was dubbed as a classic case of over over um, overthinking from from the Manchester City manager and um, you know it's hard to think anything other than that really isn't it um, when you see such a striking uh, omission when with no Fernandinho and no Rodri in the team no he, he's got history of it as well I, I think they've gone out in the Champions League in the past couple of seasons through similar similar things uh, it's the fact that everyone unanimously said the same thing. Where it's it's the second time this season that Man City have gone without one of Rodri or Fernandinho. The one other time they did it was in a dead rubber against Olympiacos, where they were already through, so it didn't really matter anyway. So that kind of just proves how how Pep even knows how important they are, and yet here he is showing up in the the biggest final of the lot without either of them. It's just baffling, isn't it? And mm. The match pretty much went as you would have expected after seeing that lineup. I mean, it was an attacking lineup, so you maybe would have thought City could have had the firepower to go on and win it. But Canty absolutely dominated the midfield. I think we both said it. He was probably a man of the match. He was phenomenal throughout. And I, I just feel as though had he played Fernandinho, he would have maybe calmed Canty down a little bit. They would have nullified him slightly. And I definitely think that on the goal, that hole would have been plugged. Mm. Yeah, it, it was strange. Uh, it was really strange to see that selection. Uh, Gundogan as well, the highest scorer this season, playing then in the deepest position. So that was quite odd against the Chelsea team that notoriously keep clean sheets. To keep your top scorer in the deepest midfield position does seem slightly yeah. um, odd. And, and on top of that, playing an out-of-form Sterling for mm. as long as he did as well. I can understand why he started Sterling, but he kept him on for... 80 minutes. It's yep. just some really baffling decisions. From so the, the thinking about, you know, some people have broke this down tactically and a good point made was that Reese James did cause a lot of damage in the previous game. So the idea to keep Sterling high up to force Reese James back and make him think twice about pushing forward. Uh, of course, Mara's on the other side doing hopefully in Guardiola's mind the same to Ben Chilwell. Two goal scoring wingers. If those wing backs push too high up, City have lots of you know lots of pace and dribbling ability and and goal scoring threat to exploit on the counter because of course Sterling is very quick, quicker than Phil Foden who would play on that side and maybe that yeah. that was part of the thinking there. Um, but again, then Phil Foden in the midfield position where he's got more. Uh, he's got to be more disciplined. Guardiola himself said he plays him on the wing because he needs to learn that discipline. Then in the Champions League final, puts him in the central midfield. Um, <laughs> to, to, you know, De Bruyne as the false nine. De Bruyne, it had actually been Bernardo Silva more more notoriously playing as the false nine, doing quite a good job as it, of it as well, with De Bruyne slightly deeper where he's more effective. But this time, De Bruyne the false nine and it was non-existent against this, uh, against this Chelsea team. It was... Um, it was a strange, it, yeah. I mean, the, as we said, the glaring omission was the de- defensive mid for the reasons you just said, which can, I think made City's defense look a lot more ragged than it has done this season as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. With absolutely. that midfielder often dropping in, making a back three shield, um, it means that you know Diaz and particularly John Stones has felt a lot more at ease and comfortable in the in in defense. Without mm-hmm. that, there, John Stones looked like a rag doll. He pulled everywhere. Yeah. Um, in the first it, ten minutes, Werner had him on toast. 
four times. It, mm. it wasn't just that chance either. I think they had three or four really good chances throughout the match compared to yeah. City. Hardly had, it, hardly had a kick in the Chelsea penalty box. Uh, I think on top of that, Zinchenko didn't. He made a, a bit of a mistake for the goal. It wasn't completely his fault. No, but it was... I think it's yet another example of the fact that Zinchenko is maybe not of the caliber that they need in the left back mm. berth at Man City, and that's maybe somewhere that they can go out this summer and find an upgrade for. In fairness, though, I think given his performances in the Champions League just recently, that was somewhat something many City fans, yeah. many people would have put. He would have been in the team, I think, of many people based on yeah, his performances. I, that, that, was, that was less of a surprise, wasn't it? Because mm. I think particularly in the semi-final, Cancelo struggled at left-back yeah. uh, and Zinchenko came on and he, he made them a little bit more solid. But as I say, I think in the summer, I think they do need to go out and buy an out-and-out left-back that, that is of the quality required as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's something to look at. I mean, we talk about the summer and now, I think I could have written this report from The Athletic, actually, that um, now many <laughs> many players are quite upset, frustrated at Guardiola's lack of game time that he's been giving out to certain players. I mean, I actually think this was inevitable from for a while, really. And, and one of the things I thought has been so good about Guardiola's management is the way he's kept a hungry squad full of talent fairly happy and, 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 you know, content. There's about 20 players in that Man City team that probably feel they have a right to be starting every week. And yeah. they many don't. Many start sparsely, some a little bit more than sparsely, but it, it, you can't keep them all. You can't, you can't start 20 players. So invariably, this time would come where players are feeling a little bit disgruntled at not getting enough game time. And it just so happens that the report comes out after they lose a Champions League final where Guardiola is under the spotlight. I do wonder whether this article would have come out had they won it. (laughs) And whether players would be thinking slightly differently had they won it. Mm. Yeah, I I happen to think the same. But it's an inevitability as well. I mean, for example, Raheem Sterling, who's been playing regularly for two seasons, two and a half seasons, has found himself playing very few minutes for half a season or so. Um, possibility that he might fancy an, a move elsewhere. That, that's that's probably fair, given how Mares and Foden and Bernardo Silva have played in those positions. Even Torres coming in, doing a really good job, in scoring a hat-trick mm-hmm. against Newcastle. So there is a possibility that Sterling might feel a little bit like that. Laporte was also mentioned. I actually think that's a bit more... I'm not sure because for me, I think Man City's best two centre-backs are Diaz and Laporte. And I actually think it's only a matter of time before, in my eyes, Laporte would reclaim his berth next to next to Ruben Diaz. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the one question mark with that is I feel like they're both better as the left centre-back. Right uh, and, and left footer though, aren't As they? a partnership. They are, yeah. But Diaz seems to prefer the left side. It's just whether they could find that partnership. I, I do agree that I think they're the two best centre-backs at the club. Mm. But it's also no surprise, given given how well Laporte's done in the previous few seasons, that he's maybe itching for a move away, considering he's hardly played at all this season. Well, he's been linked with Barcelona as Laporte, and actually it makes a lot of sense if they had the money, which I don't know if they do, but it does make <laughs> a lot of sense because he'd probably get into... As a transfer, it makes sense, yeah. He'd get into any club in Europe, I think, Laporte, virtually give or take, maybe Liverpool with Van Dijk and, and maybe not get, he probably wouldn't else Van Dijk, would he, from that side, but most... Yeah, well, we'll have to see how he comes back from his injury, but... but <laughs> most clubs, I think he'd be getting into that left centre-back position. Um, yeah, and, and and Sterling's interesting as well. I do think Sterling gets into quite a lot of European teams, but I, I could not see Sterling going to another Premier League team. I, I, I don't see that myself. 
Um, I know he's linked with Arsenal, but I don't think that would be his ambition. <laughs> I don't absolutely no chance of that. However, I can tell you know. a manager. He's, they are managed by a man he loved and and loved to work under in Mikel Arteta, someone who uh, developed his game, particularly in the final third, massively. It was actually when Arteta left that his game took a big dip in terms of goals. Yeah, no, that is true. That is true. So, but I, I don't, I can't see that one happening to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if he were to leave, I feel like he would be a good signing for whoever did sign it because he, he's a really good player. And it's just maybe a lack of form this season that's been the big issue. I mean, I actually think Bayern Munich, you know, they've got Serge Gnabry, Kingsley Coman as well, but also a Sterling going in there. They've got, they got they like to have four wingers to, to Bayern Munich. I know notorious mm-hmm. four wingers they can rotate. Um, and he's of that mould. He's a confident player, likes to run with the ball and likes to likes to uh, get amongst the goals. I do think he could be a success at, some, at a club like Bayern Munich. Um, and there's a, a growing uh, a growing number of English players in the Bundesliga and doing well in the Bundesliga as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Juventus as well, arguably, uh, if they could find the money, uh, strengthen their wide positions as well. Probably depends on if they could offload Ronaldo, if, if Ronaldo wants to leave, because he obviously takes a large wage burden. Yeah. Um, and then in La Liga, again, I link him with, again, I think he'd be great for a club like Barcelona. Obviously, Fatty plays on that left side as well, but I still think... They do lack a little bit in in prolific wingers, especially with Dembele's injuries. However, yet again, I will say it's a money issue. And that's what my main point is. There's a lot of players that want to leave City, but there's not a lot of clubs with a lot of money. So yeah, that does limit a lot of things, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And would they would they go to another Prem team? I mean, who's going to offer these wages? Man remember, United, are City, they going to go to Man United? Well, I don't think wages likely. are too much, but remember, City's wage structure is no, quite modest, isn't it? Uh, that is true, but their wages are significantly higher than a lot of European clubs. Sure, it's sure. Just compared to your Man United, it's maybe not that. And, not and Man City are clever. They are, they are clever operators in the transfer market. I don't think they would want to sell Sterling to a Premier League rival, nor Laporte. I don't no. think they would they would let that happen. Um and like you say, whether I think most Prem clubs are probably priced out of it. Like you say, Man United, there's no way I don't think that they're, they're, they're crossing the Manchester divide. Um, but again, if reports are to be believed, City actually want some of this to happen. They want some of these players to go for quite big sums of money because that funds their transfer overhaul. Now, big links they've had to Jack Grealish and Harry Kane, to me, feel a little bit optimistic or a little bit against their usual transfer policy, given that the record transfer is 62 million. Yeah, well, definitely against that. They bought yeah, these two. It'd be 200 million. I don't see it myself. Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I can't see Grealish going. I, I, no. Although, I mean, if you if you ever listen to any Grealish interview, he, he adores Kevin De Bruyne. He, he, he likes the way City play. So does Kane. But, but for the price that they'd have to pay for Grealish in particular, I don't think he would be worthwhile. And I don't think that they would consider breaking the transfer record for Grealish even though he is a phenomenal player whereas Kane I feel like the the numbers that he offers in particular the effectiveness that he offers I feel like they would maybe be willing to push the boat out a little bit more mm. especially if now Haaland looks like he might be staying mm. I feel like Kane's the next best option yeah again I'll reiterate what I said last time I still don't think Harry Kane needs Man City more than Man City needs Harry Kane will yeah, reiterate no, no, you that. are right you are right and also uh and it's worth bearing in mind, I think that Champions League final wasn't lost on personnel. It was lost on, in terms of the personnel they had in the squad, it was lost on the fact that I think the, I think, I think it was lost quite heavily with, with, with the manager's, uh, with the manager's setup, with the manager's decisions. I, I don't think 
and maybe you could argue that some of the players didn't turn up on the day as well. That 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 that's yeah. fair and, enough as well. But I don't think it was because the players that, weren't good enough. You've got to credit Chelsea massively yeah. too. Yeah. I think that that's a good display. A massive performance from them. Yeah, massive performance from them. Particularly Kanté to say. Uh, I could see Kanté winning Ballon d'Or after winning that. Mm. If, if he has a good Euros, I could see it happening. Yeah, no, it were, yeah, as a disclaimer to end that uh, discussion on the Champions League final, Chelsea were fantastic, phenomenal, worked. It was a crazy much better match, match than I thought it would be yeah, as well. Also much the same, better match. Also the same. And they did a phenomenal job. Thomas Tuchel beat it back Guardiola three times uh, since becoming Chelsea manager, three times out of three. He has done phenomenally well. And it's yeah. really excited to see how Chelsea and uh, line up next season. Anyway, on to transfer deals that have been done. I don't really want to jump too much into speculation because there's going to be a time and a place for that, which probably isn't now, but um, maybe we'll do a little bit uh, because it's always fun. (laughs) But um, first, we'll go to the done deals. Biggest one, as I sort of hinted or touched at, or hint said at the start of this uh, podcast, Canate, Brahima Canate to Liverpool. um, Summarises on Twitter, really, by saying, you know, if he's a colossus, as I said, about he's an absolute colossus. Probably uh, many people are be uh, who have um, with close connections at RB Leipzig actually say he's the the centre back at the, the club yeah. with the highest ceiling. I mean, whenever, whenever I've watched them, he's been better than Upamecano actually. So, as a defender, as yeah, yeah, it does seem strange as well that his buyout clause was so low. So it's a good deal by Liverpool. Yeah, thirty-six yeah. million pounds. Yeah, I think that is a good signing. But as yeah. you also mentioned on Twitter, go on. I'm sure you want to. No, yeah, it's. It's the injury record, and it's been now by all accounts, they have had he's had hip surgery, I believe, and he the club will be fully aware of his condition, uh, obviously before before bringing him in, and I'm I'm of the I've been sort of informed or seen that the club do believe, you know that well obviously they're very optimistic about his health, the way he contributes to the team, the way he tactically fits into Klopp's ideas. They're quite confident it'll be a, it'll be a roaring success. Now, like you, I think from what I've seen, he's a very, he, you know, he's got the defensive discipline that maybe a Pamecano hadn't always had. Um, he's also very good on the ball, physically dominant, and, he, and he's, uh, he covers a lot of ground very quickly. So is everything you'd want, really? And, and the perfect compliment to Van Dijk, that is a scary defensive partnership if yeah. he can stay injury-free. Now, as I say injury-free, because for the past two seasons, he's spent more time on the sidelines than he has in the team. Uh, but again, to, to just to reiterate, by all accounts, he's had surgery on a hip problem and the club, Liverpool, are confident that the worst of his injuries is probably behind him. But... Again, those numbers that we see, they, they speak, you know, they speak for themselves. The lack of game time is still would still be a concern for me. And Liverpool in the past have had have bought players for big money, Cater, and he's had nightmares with injuries. Thiago had injury problems, but it's you know, I think he's grown in prominence this year. So hopefully, for Liverpool's sake, he can put that behind him. Because again, Jordan, Gomez and Matip, Matip's made of glass, Gomez isn't far off, you know, potentially three centre backs with injury concerns. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a good signing, though. I think he's a massive upgrade on both Matip and Gomez as well. Mm. I think he's better than both. Uh, but yeah, no, as you say, I think the injury worries will be there. And particularly with Van Dijk coming back from a serious injury, will he be the same level? I don't know. Might he get injured again? 
Joe Gomez, another long-term injury. The same mm-hmm. issue. Uh, and Matip, obviously, his teams will get injured every time he plays. So mm-hmm. th- there's a concern there. Uh, whether they'll sign Kabak as well, I think that's unlikely. But they're certainly getting numbers in to prevent something like what's happened this season happening. Yeah. I think it's unlikely that they get so many injuries again. And I was going to say, you get three defensively... Uh, sorry, three injury dubious, dubious. I can't think. They're, 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 three defenders, centre backs who have dubious injury records. What there are the go. odds of them all getting injured at the same time? <laughs> probably not. Probably not. I mean, the lower the averages are, the more players you get, the less chance you're going to have them all going like dominoes. But you never know. I suppose then, yeah, even then, though, I suppose Fabinho at times has shown he's a very careful centre half. And in that situation, the only issue with that was he had he was called upon far too soon for that. Really, yeah, They've had a lot and more that prevented anyone backup. from playing in front of them as well, exactly. But, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, solid signing generally for Liverpool. That probably the second biggest signing, really, of recent times is Alaba to Real Madrid on a free transfer. Um, really, really, uh, good signing this for Real Madrid. Ramos going, probably, well, he has gone, um, can't agree, uh, terms and also. Uh, he's he's barely featured this year because he's had injury troubles. So I think they just thought it was an appropriate time for the parting of the ways. So Varane will probably shift across to right centre-back, moving Alaba coming into left centre-back. Of course, he's very versatile. Alaba can also cover in midfield, on the wing, in left-back as well, where he predominantly played for Bayern before shifting across to the centre. Um, yeah, around €250 Euros a week, as Jordan notes in our notes. 250000 a week. Yeah, I was going to say that is a bargain <laughs> if it was just €250. Um, yeah. On this podcast? Yeah, but he would be on this podcast. Yeah, he would. Uh, uh, the, the, those wages are that high because it's just offsetting the transfer fee that they would have paid. Yeah. Uh, it's still massive wages, though, isn't it? And I think in the long run, I think that for me, it's just almost too much because... Mm. Yes, he is a very good centre-back, but he's a good defender, I'll yeah. say, because I'm not certain that he his best position is centre-back. I feel no. like I prefer him as a left-back almost. Yeah. But Real Madrid have toyed a little bit with a back three this season. Mm. Maybe that's maybe the sign is with that in mind, because I think that's almost his perfect, perfect left centre-back, yeah. Exactly, yeah. As I say, I just think the wages in the long run will be adding to the, the financial pressures that they're already faced with. Uh, and, and that's the only question mark I have over the signing, really. Yeah. I think generally, he's a good one. I think, it, I, think it's really, I think it's, for me, obviously you can say, you can say that with most of Real Madrid signings. They do, they, again, there's a lot of clubs that you do think they're too trigger happy just to give money to the players that come in. Yeah, it's, it's opposed spending to giving them, recklessly, but it's a good sign. <laughs> giving them incentive to get performances to boost wages is the Man the City model, which I admire so much. Giving a club that could probably do the thing that many do and just give the money there and then they do dangle the carrot, several carrots. Um, and I do like that method more. But no, I, I'm of the mindset. It's a very, I think it's a good sign because, of course, when you lose someone like Sergio Ramos, you're losing a captain, a leader. Uh, on and off the pitch, a brilliant performer. And David Alaba is someone, I think, who is a leader, an experienced character, uh, particularly at Bayern mm. Munich. Really helped Alfonso Davies as well. Davies talked really highly of him when he came to the club, uh, helped him when he, in, in, from his transition from a left wing, left winger to a left back. And yeah, he's done a, you know, he's done a really, I think he's, I think Real Madrid, have, they've done a, a steady and safe uh, signing there because it's a big, you know, Ramos has really big shoes to fill 
And obviously when he, he hasn't played for Real Madrid, Varane's not quite looked the same player for his club, uh, particularly in the bigger games. But Alaba, I would think, will add a bit of calmness to that to that uh, centre-back partnership. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's a good sign. Yeah, I'd, my one other question mark with it would be that as it is a replacement for Ramos, I'd, I feel like both Varane and Alaba are maybe this, the better secondary centre-back rather than mm. that commanding leader. And that would be the only other issue I have if they are playing in a back four. Mm. But no, I think he'll do well. I think they'll do well. Yeah. I mean, Bayern, he said, Omar Richards from Reading. Where did that come from? He's done yeah. really good in the championship. Omar Richards played over 40 games for Reading this season, really lighting it up. And now he's gone to Bayern Munich and another one of the, um, as you noted, the the Englishmen going to yeah. the Bundesliga. What are you Young doing? English players going to the Bundesliga. I, I, and I respect it a lot for the young English players to do it. I mean, Obviously, if you maybe are playing for Reading and, and Bayern give you the call, then it's not too big of a, 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 an issue for you. It's, it's quite an easy decision to make. But you've got to respect it because it's a new culture, it's a new language, mm. and it's really throwing yourself in the deep end. And yeah. I can't say that I've seen him too much, but no. I, I feel like it. They, they don't make too many mistakes in the transfer market. Yeah. Well, he's 23 years old. Uh 1.85 metres, played as a wing-back and a full-back, so versatility key for Bayern. Also, again, it's it's part the Alaba, partly the Alaba replacement, because, of course, if if um, Alfonso Davies wasn't playing, it would probably be Alaba or Lucas Hernandez, who shifted across to left-back, and yep. now they could keep Lucas Hernandez as primarily a centre-back option, and, and they've got uh, Omar Richards, who can who can slot in there as well, so that's a really interesting one. As I say, at twenty three, they're a bit still a youngster, but a little bit less um, of a youngster than certainly a Jude Bellingham or someone of that ilk. Uh, got a bit of experience behind him at least, uh, so probably be a bit more uh, streetwise to how football works, particularly in the Championship, which is proper man's football, um, as it's <laughs> also called. Um, yeah, I mean the big the big other one, really, of course. Can't really. Uh, Not today. Yeah, that was that. Yeah, that was released today, Monday. Uh, announced. Should have probably led with this, really, but the other two were early, so it makes sense to go with that. Sergio Aguero to Barcelona, two-year deal. I'd say ironic how Luis Suarez was deemed surplus requirements because of age just twelve months ago, and now uh, injury-stricken Sergio Aguero from Manchester City left um, a club that he's made a legacy at to go to a club he hopefully can make. Uh, a late legacy at, I guess, with his with his best friend mm-hmm. in football, Lionel Messi. Can't help but think there's a bit of a sweetener there to keep Messi at the club, uh, keep him sweet, uh, because as we say, Messi's done so well this season, particularly the second half of the season, bringing Aguero in, opportunity to play with his best friend in football. Um, he seems quite happy now. Is part of that decision as much to please Messi as it is to get a new head forward in? Yeah, I think so. It's the classic. I mean, I know you don't play it, but it's a classic football manager move. You can sign one of his former former teammates, and it it just improves the happiness a little bit. I feel like that's exactly what's happening here. He's not his former um, teammate, though, is he? No, but they're they're good friends, aren't they? I feel like maybe a football manager would know that as well. If they're both of the same national team, we'll see. Um, yeah, no, I feel like that's the main reason. But he'll still offer something. He'll, I think he'll still get a few goals. He offers a lot of experience and, yeah, it, it's not the worst signing. I don't think his wages are that high either. Uh, I think he's taken a bit of a wage cut to join his best mate at Barca. I do think that one thing that adds to that maybe theory that it is just for to keep Messi happy as well is the fact that 
it looks like Cummins' future might be a little bit uncertain. We're mm. not certain he's going to stay, mm. and yet they're still making all these signings or trying to make these signings, supposedly. So, yeah, bit bit of a strange one, but yeah, I think it's mainly to keep Messi happy. Although there is there is a not to be too disrespectful to Aguero, um, we saw particularly against Everton on the final day of the Premier League uh, a oh. clinical edge. Uh, we also saw that against yeah. oh, he's, Palace in front of goal. He's still very capable, isn't he? And many people have said if he keeps fit, Barcelona in it, in maybe if they if they go a, a little bit less heavy on the press, can have a player who gets twenty goals in the league this season, just like Suarez in for Barcelona, because he certainly knows where the goal is. But again, it's about can he keep with the intensity of of uh, elite European football? Probably not quite as intense, you could argue, uh, in Barcelona, particularly with Messi, who doesn't necessarily need to do all the pressing that the teammates does. But then, do you want two players like that in the eleven? They should sign Hamis Rodriguez as well, shouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, should, should they, should they? <laughs> You'd uh, have a heart attack. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I mean, valid question. Can Is it viable to have two press, you know, people who aren't really going to commit to that press? You know, it's such a big thing in the modern game, isn't it? But obviously Messi doesn't have to because he's just... He's a player you don't have to do that. Yeah, but can you, you can't have too many players like that, as good as they are. You can't at all, no. Uh, I feel as like when they do play maybe the, the lowest standard of opposition, you can get away with it a little bit more. But a lot of the time, it's maybe subbing on Aguero for the big moments at the end of a game when you need a goal. It's maybe something that we might see more than him starting week in, week out. Mm. Apparently, uh, Fabrizio Romano, the uh, very wonderful journalist who breaks all the transfer news, also suggested... Not very much of a secret that uh, Gini Wijnaldum, who's left Liverpool, is medical permitted also going to sign at Barcelona. But that's expected to be confirmed in a in a couple of weeks because they do all the medical side of it and yeah. everything. De Boer, that, well, De Boer's actually come out and said that he's not allowed to do a medical while he's yeah, uh, exactly. That's why with the, with yeah. the Dutch national team, which yeah. is a bit of a strange one from a national team manager, isn't it? You, you'd think he'd want him to just get it over and done with and have his mind firmly on the Euros, but. Mm. Clearly, because I mean, imagine he's now going to go into games thinking, I can't get injured here, it'll yep. cost me a contract. Yeah. So it, it, maybe he might duck out of tackles, he might not try quite as hard. That's a fair it's, point, that. Just seems a strange a strange stance from De Boer to do that. Mm. Uh, but it's also no surprise from De Boer either. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, so again, I think that'd be quite a good signing for Barcelona, actually, because he still had a lot to give in the Premier League and certainly someone who's no stranger to a press all action combative midfielder, probably exactly what they really need as well. Complementing the lights already of a, of a Frankie de Jong and more experienced uh, Sergio Busquets, who's getting on quite a bit now, but nice to get a bit of that uh, experience, but still got the legs, still got the energy to make a, a real impact, I think, for Barcelona. And just lastly on the transfer front as well, uh, Tom Heaton to Manchester United on the free transfer. Uh, I think that's a really good signing. Will it be yep. um, as a replacement for Lee Grant, another ex-Burnley goalkeeper, uh, as the third choice at United, or will it be uh, as a second choice if they try and move David De Gea on? Because honestly, I think he'd be a nice second choice option. He's an experienced, solid performer in the Premier League. Um, and, you know, either of those, whether it be third or second choice, I think he'd do an okay job. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd still be first choice at Villa had he not had that serious injury. Uh, obviously, Villa will be counting the lucky stars because they've got Emmy Martinez, who's... Mm. Uh, lit the world up this season, but uh, yeah, I think he's a very, a very competent, very capable keeper. Tom Eaton seems like a nice lad as well, and he'll be a good player to have around the squad as well at Man United. I think it'll be third choice to be honest. Uh, I, I don't see 
than relying on Heaton as much as they have, um, at least with the, the second choice keeper recently anyway. Small dip into Euros territory now then. Um, going off recent uh, report breakings, um, we are led to believe... Um, we're led to believe. Can give you the inside scoop of the thing that you'll it's already have really, heard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're led to believe. So if if this is miraculous and Trent Alexander Arnold does make the squad, then we're questioning the validity of a lot of journalists today. Um, <laughs> but it does seem to be that this is the breaking idea that Trent Alexander Arnold is set to miss out on Gareth Southgate's 26 man squad for the European Championships. Now, without without jumping on that straight away. Uh, let's let's sort of take the sort of uh, overarching stance. We're not going to commit necessarily to saying this is law, but it probably is. So what do we think about that? Because it, our stances are quite similar, I think, really, isn't it? When I, when I said, and you kind of agree with me, that we would both pick him for our 26-man squads if we were picking a 26-man squad. However, yeah. the depth of talent in that position, I think, is unmatched across any country in the world. I think England have the best right-back selection in the world. And the three right-backs that will go are still of a very high level, so much so that even though there is an argument Alexander-Arnold is as good as any of them, the three that are going are of a standard that you shouldn't necessarily be too worried or saying sack the manager over it. Yeah, I mean, I might say that about if he doesn't pick Godfrey, I might say this is like Southgate. But no, from the Trent Alexander perspective... I no, I, 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 as you say, I agree completely with you that I, I think he's, at least attacking-wise, I do think he's the best option. And that's why I think that if I were the, the manager, I would bring him in the 26-man squad. But I think from an all-round standpoint, I think Kyle Walker would be my first choice. Mm. You look at Reese James, he's just won the Champions League and dropped to maybe just second to Kante, man of the match performance. And then he's got Trippier, who... Obviously, Gareth Southgate trusts. He knows quite well from the World Cup and he had a great World Cup as well. And I think with Trippier, he's played in, in a team that's played three at the back at times. And I think that if we do change that system, then he knows he can trust him in that position. Whereas Trent has never really played in a three mm. at the back as a wing back. And although I think he probably could play there, Southgate wants to, wants to go with what he trusts if he does need to do that. And Trippier got into the La Liga team of the season. It's not like Trippier's suddenly, you know, a player who's just, he's living off his World Cup memory. He performed, he was a regular for Simeone, as you say, at wing back, at full back, got into team of the season in many people's La Liga team of the season. Such was the level of his performance in that Atletico defence, wherever he played. Um, So... I think it's a bit respectful from some people to suggest that he's still living off the World Cup of 2018. Yes, he was great in the World Cup of 2018, probably England's best player, but he hasn't stopped there. In fact, he's revitalised his career under Diego Simeone. He has performed exceptionally well. To think that suddenly his inclusion over Trent Alexander-Arnold's a travesty, I think that's absolutely baffling, really, and people should really watch more of Atletico Madrid's games before they make statements like that. Um, yeah. No, as as I say, I just think that from Gareth Southgate's perspective, I feel like he just trusts him a little bit more because he knows him. Absolutely. And and to be honest, why would you not? Because you don't get a lot of time to manage uh, a national team, and people say you should always pick players on form. But if you've personally managed a player and he's done really really well for you, and you have a good relationship with him, and you know, like you say, you can trust him, then you are probably going to pick them. 
despite what yeah. people say about, oh, well, he's done better in form or he's out of form or he's this. And to be fair to Southgate, he trusted and and, and had a liking for Eric Dyer, but he didn't pick Eric Dyer for this squad because he yeah, was out of form. Goodness. No, exactly. But Trippier wasn't out of form and he was playing very well. And that's why he's been given the selection, not because he's Gareth Southgate's teacher's pet. Yes, he's worked well for him in the past. Yes, he's delivered for Southgate and his country, but also he's delivered for his club. Um, and that seems to get lost amid everything. My take of it really is that I think with Alexander Arnold, and you, you sort of touched on it as well. I think when you look at Liverpool, there's an argument that Alexander Arnold is the attacking system at times. He is the system. They give it to him. He has the license and the freedom to do whatever he wants on that right hand side. How do Liverpool and Robertson the same? The two fullbacks are integral to the way Liverpool play. There's a system. Again, get the ball to them at all times, cross the ball in at all times. Any angle, any position, give the ball to Alexander Arnold, give the ball to Robertson, they will create the chances generally. Now, I don't think England are like that. They have players, I think Southgate has set up, where he wants more positional concentration, positional focus. You've said Trippier, three at the back, yes, wing back, also a full back, so he's got versatility. Uh, Reese James, right centre back, brilliant, right wing back. Even better, and I think one of the things Reese James has as well. Not only does he have the positional sense uh, and positional trustworthiness that he has to have under Tuchel, you know, he has to have that. Uh, he's also performed for England, but he also has uh, over Alexander Arnold more physicality, a bit more yeah. pace, a little bit more defensive assurance. And while Trent Alexander Arnold's passing is probably the best of all of them, Reese James is probably. I don't know, 85% of that passing. He's an outstanding passer of a ball. Yeah, well, Ridiculous I mean, tennis. when he was at Wigan, he has played in central midfield. So exactly. he's certainly capable on the ball, a lot more capable than maybe people give him credit for. Uh, these, I just say, these are just three really good options. And the fact that no one's really surprised at the fact that Aaron Bissaka hasn't mm. even got a look in, it yeah. says, it, says it all about the quality that we see. Because I think Bissaka would start for, for almost... Yeah. Well, most nations uh, yeah. that are in, going to be playing in the Euros. And in fairness, though, to that, and I, I, there is an argument some people have to bring him up, and I can see that argument. But what I would say, though, is particularly when you do go forward with the ball, like we saw against uh, Villarreal, United Villarreal in that game, Villarreal were happy for Juan Bissaka to be on the ball. That's not because yeah. he's a bad, you know, it's not because he gives the ball away time after time when he's on the ball, but he's not. He doesn't have the quality scary. that you maybe would see from a Trent Alexander Arnold. I think he's getting better with that. Yeah, no, I think he is as well. I think but he's, he's not. This season also. You look at Alexander Arnold, it's natural creativity, craft, genius on the right foot. I think it's the same with Daniel James. I think his technique's so obvious how he it nonchalantly whips a ball in now. It's with just, Reece James. Yeah, Reese James, phenomenal. Trippy has always had brilliant. Uh, crossing on the dead ball. Yeah, no, he's he's a real. I think people underestimate how good Trippier is at crossing. Actually, very, very good. I think the, the one time that I kind of think of when Trent Alexander Arnold would be really useful is coming off the bench mm. late on. Obviously, he's more than capable of starting, but if if he were to be in the squad late on, and you bring on Calvert Lewin and Trent Alexander Arnold, and you just aim crosses in for Calvert Lewin, I could. Miss. <laughs> I think that 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 is almost the. The, the only time where I think that that would be where you really want Alexander Arnold, but mm. Trippier can offer the same thing, really. I think, I think when you break it down though with common sense, like we say, I think it's quite obvious why he's going to miss out. Like the, the Southgate's not necessarily a four, a back four or a back three. He's a fluid kind, you know, he wants to be able to pick between the two. 
and you've got two people that are comfortable playing wing back and fullback, James and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and Trippier. James can also play right centre back, and also Walker. We imagine he's going to be a right back or a right centre back because Walker's got the pace to to play the right centre back and the right back role well, but not the not the uh, technical brilliance for the right wing back. I think I don't think I wouldn't personally put him ahead of the other two at right wing back. No, need I wouldn't either. More. But then I think when you break that down, it seems quite simple then because Trent Alexander-Arnold only plays how he plays for Liverpool in a way that I think he is the system and it's not related to positions, like I said before. Liverpool make it all about him. With England, I really don't think that is the case. And there's a lot more to it. No, I agree. I I, I mean, both of us, as we've said, would would pick him if it was us picking the squad. So you know what I just want to kind of... Make sure that people are aware of that. Yeah, as a disclaimer as well, I think it's really interesting because I was thinking about this. Uh, we talk about this a lot more at length in different future ones, future pods, but England as a back three, I feel, has so much potential in future years when you think of how Reese James has adopted the right centre-back role when I've seen him there, and you think of Trent Alexander-Arnold at right wing-back, and having those two in the same team is, gives such an interesting dynamic to that right hand side. Yeah. I think, particularly when you, got, yeah, you go well, I was going to say, I was going to say Ben Godfrey actually is a as a because he's been playing as a centre back a lot in a back three, mm. and I think that and, he, and on the left side as well. Mm. I, th- I think that he's more than capable of, of, of fulfilling that role as well. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really surprised that if he does get dropped out of this yeah. the 26 man squad. Uh, particularly when it looks as though he's going to continue with Connor Cody, who I, I don't see playing a minute. <laughs> I, I would say with Cody, though, and this is maybe the thinking, that obviously, apart from the fact he's, he's played for England a few times, he plays a back three quite religiously for Wolves, occasionally delving into a in back the middle. four. Yeah, in the middle. Yeah. And that's quite important because John Stones plays that has played that for England before. And if there was something to happen to John Stones... I'm not convinced that he'd have someone comfortable enough to go into, if he wanted to play back three, comfortable as Connor Cody to go into that back three and then take that position up. And also, if Maguire gets injured, big possibility that he does go to a back three if Maguire's not fit enough for whatever reason to play any games. uh, Because I don't think the defensive options are necessarily strong enough for a back four in that situation in the biggest games of that tournament. Yeah, as I say, though, for me, I think that if it were to go to a back three, say Maguire or Stones were injured, I would play the other one of them in the middle, Godfrey at left centre-back and Walker or James at right centre-back because I just think that pace-wise, obviously, Godfrey, Walker, James are, are all absolutely rapid. Mm. And I just don't... If I feel like if Cody plays a minute, we're, we're not in a good position. Mm. I, just, I can't see a scenario where he's actually going to or should get game time because... Mm. Look, he, he, he's done well for Wolves, but I just don't think he's maybe the level that we need. And that's why I feel like it's a bit more, it's almost a travesty that, that yeah. he's going to take Cody over Godfrey. Mm. I can understand Mings, though, actually, because left, left centre back kind of makes a little bit more sense. But mm. I, I just, that's that. I, I have more of an issue with that than I do with Trent Alexander Arnold. Yeah. Well, which maybe just because well, I'm an Everton fan, really. Yeah. Are you just back to Trent Alexander Arnold, though? And we talked, to, I talked a little bit about future and things like that. Um, I think, regardless of if he goes to this tournament or not, it's going to the England right back position of Reese James and, and Trent Alexander Arnold. That's scary, still scary depth for the, for the for the um, for the upcoming years. Uh, obviously, Walker and Trippier are getting older a bit now, but it doesn't just stop there, does it? Because you've got Lamptey as well yeah, and Max Aaron, who've got a lot of yeah. talent, and also as well 
Um, Wan Bissaka as well. Uh, depending yeah. on if he, he he doesn't pick um, his second allegiance, which he might do if he, if he keeps getting rejected at some point. You know, many footballers do. But again, that's another option to have just just for that yin and yang complementary thing. But again, just just thinking about that because before you um, cynically switched chat to Godfrey. Um, <laughs> What I mean, I get my bitterness in somewhere with the RCB and the right uh, RCB sounds like a car with a truck with the right wing back and the right center back being James and, and, and Trent Alexander Arnold and the fluidity of having that right wing back shift inside and that right back overlap, or even just having a marauding right center back powering through the midfield, like we see, because these systems aren't set in stone, they're fluid, they're meant to be moving at all times. That is, as I say, two. Of the, that's potentially two of Europe's best fullbacks for a long time, I think, those two players. Yeah. Um, and that's really exciting for, for England, irrespective of if Alexander-Arnold doesn't go to this tournament. Him and James are probably the future for England for the upcoming years. At yeah. the I mean, that's maybe the one other thing that I, I'd mention with that is that the other downside of keeping Trent out and picking a Trippier is that Trippier is a lot older and you kind of giving, you could give Trent that experience of a big major tournament uh, and going away with the England camp that he's not going to get now. That's the one mm. other thing I've mentioned. But mm. as, as we've said, it's maybe less of a surprise than people are letting him. Mm. And, oh, and who's have the, and who has had the better season? Trippi has had the better season. I know Trent Alexander-Arnold's yeah. had a brilliant end to the season. It was very... He, he didn't get going until, really... It's actually since he got dropped got, from an exactly. England squad, isn't it, yeah. that he's really kicked on. And obviously, Trippi so. had the betting ban for 10 matches, which was, you know... Yeah. Uh, that that happened, but apart from that, excellent season, and oh, and he's won a he's won a league, and maybe South and you can't. I don't think you can criticize Southgate for picking him, but like you say, I think you make a good point. It would be nice to get uh, Alex, Alexander Arnold some more international experience because he actually hasn't had that much, particularly under, under Southgate. He might end up a bit like a Leighton Baines, where he's unfortunate that there's well, it was Ashley Cole for Leighton Baines mm. in that regard. That mm. it's unfortunate there is someone else there that's maybe better all round. Even though he's the superior player attacking, yeah, I think you can. Play, I think there's a, there's a position where you can play them both, James and Trent Alexander Arnold. Yeah. If not, well, as well, there's yeah. the, like Brazil. Remember Brazil of Mykon and Danny Alves. That yeah. was another one. I, was, I mean, I was going to say as well. Look at Scotland in Robertson and Tierney. They play I, often. Tierney is the left centre back, and you Robert. can then have both of them marauding on at once if you're really I, desperate for. And I, I, I wouldn't be. Aver- I, I mean, I just said that a few minutes ago. I wouldn't be averse to that. That'd be really interesting. Um, anyway, very good. Make sure to uh, like, subscribe, review, review. That I usually leave that out, but you should review. It's good. Very nice to read. If it's a nice review, if it's not, it's well, it's quite funny. Um, at fifteen <laughs> moth pod, Jordan will answer any DMs unless it's a predictions DM, in which case I love to jump onto those and put my super anything. But otherwise, I'm sure Jordan or well, or myself will be happy if it's grammatically correct. I've answered. You want to follow me at the Johnny Bentley. If you want to know why Jordan's privatized, listen to his prediction of the uh, Villarreal Man United match uh, exactly, yeah. in, in the previous exactly. uh, in the previous instalment. Uh, maybe it won't be privatized forever. Maybe it will be. I, I make it sound like that's a bad thing. I wouldn't nationalize Jordan if I was uh, if I was in charge of Twitter accounts. Uh, better, better we to shall be see. No, we exactly, see. exactly. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Take care. Must reiterate: like, subscribe, and review this, please. We'll see you next week where it will be all things Euros, I really do promise you. Take care, stay safe, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone.